Now tonight we continue on in our letter from the Apostle Paul to a guy named Titus. Uh, and so if you have your Bible with you and you want to open it up, we're in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Um, as you're flipping your Bibles there, uh, we have talked a lot about the Greco-Roman world in general as we've journeyed through the New Testament, but especially as we've been uh, in this letter from Paul to Titus. Um, in the Greek world, plays were a big part of their culture. Um, still in high school, we often read some of the, um, the Greek tragedies or comedies. Uh, and there were stage actors who would go on a stage and they would begin to portray different characters, different emotions. And what they would do is that these stage actors would hold up these masks to cover their face that would demonstrate an emotion. And so if you want to go ahead and pull up that slide for me. So you've probably seen this image before, right? Uh, it's a fairly common image that you see in the arts community specifically around the theater. Um, one portrays tragedy and grief. The other is, sa- is happiness and joy and laughter and comedy. And so you see this is uh, a normal thing now. But the reason for these is these are the masks that these stage actors would wear. And it would let everyone who is watching know who they were, what they were demonstrating in that moment. The Greek word for these stage actors were hypocrites where we get the word hypocrite from. Now, these stage actors would hold up that mask, pretending to be something that they were not. Now, they held it up, and you knew if you were watching somebody wear that mask that that was not their real person, right? Like, you would see that and go, oh, you're a stage actor, if, amongst other reasons that you'd probably be able to tell. But by holding up the mask, it let you know that, oh, you're portraying something that you're not really Now, Jesus would speak of these types of play actors when referring to religious individuals who held up a mask of perfection, of doing the right thing, but were inwardly corrupted. In the same way that uh, an audience member would be able to watch one of these play actors, as Hippocrates, standing on a stage, uh, holding up one of these masks over the face, and you go, oh, I know what you are. You're faking it. You're, You're an actor. The same way Jesus would just watch these Pharisees, and go, you're faking it. You're an actor. Now, in our Walt Disney World bubble, uh, for those of us who are or have ever been a cast member, we are taught to kind of put on this Disneyfied persona, right? Like, be yourself, but like not fully yourself. Be, be a version of yourself. And that makes sense because at Disney World, everything is a stage and so everything is a set. You are out amongst everything that is happening. So the idea is that you fade away for the story to be broadcast, just like any time that you go to see a production, whether it's in the ancient Greeks or at Dr. Phillips, right? Like this idea that you are watching somebody who is being something that they're actually not. And that's great in a a bunch of different ways. But one of the things that I think specifically for those of us who are around the, the Disney bubble, whether you're a cast member or not, is that we have a really good radar to tell when people are faking it because we're experts in it. We know what it's like to say, oh yeah, I'm doing great. Um, when actually you, you got a flat tire on the way in, you're running late, you clocked in late, and then everything has been going down to hell since. And you're like, yeah, it tastes great. How are you? What's your vacation like? What, what's your favorite things to do? We know what it's like to put on a show. So we're kind of experts in it. 
Now, when we think of hypocrites, we likely think of individuals whose actions are not consistent with their words, that, they, that what they preach, they don't put into practice. And I imagine none of us want to be that. And so therefore, our, our current answer to that in so many ways is, all right, the solution is that I'm not going to preach anything. And so then if I'm not preaching anything, then I'm not technically a hypocrite because then I can kind of do whatever I want. But for those of us who have our faith found in Jesus, the entire concept's far more interconnected than we could possibly know. It's not just our actions and our words. It's our actions and it's our words. It's our desires and our beliefs. They are all interconnected. And so when we think of what it looks like to hold the mask up, I imagine none of us want to live that way, want to live with faking it. We want to be able to be real and to be seen by others, to be seen by God and not scorned or rejected. That we can be fully ourselves and yet still fully loved. Now, we've been in a letter in the Bible from Paul to Titus uh, that we know as the letter of Titus. And uh, this was written from Paul to Titus, his young disciple, who was shepherding and pastoring a community on the island of Crete, which was ancient Greek uh, island nations. And now it had been grafted in as a Roman colony. It was in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Crete was a transient culture, like we've talked about before, where they had deep religious ties to the pagan Greek gods, while so many others from all throughout Africa and Europe and Asia would kind of coalesce there as they were bringing goods and ideas and exchanging them as they would make their way across the ancient world. And so it's into this context that in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, that that Paul continues writing this. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So everything we're going to be discovering tonight originates from this point. Paul calling Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, if you were to do a more literal translation of that Greek phrase, what it would say is something to the effect of say what is fitting in with healthy teaching. Okay, say what is fitting in with healthy teaching. Now, Paul's going to unpack a number of ways that followers of Jesus, both back then and today, should line up with the fast that they profess. How can they demonstrate to the world that they know, follow, and love Jesus not by holding up a mask, but instead by making, by taking on his character as their own and simply living in light of this new reality. Now in this passage, Paul is going to give guidance to Titus specifically as he shepherds five distinct people groups who are found within this church in Crete. But when he says sound doctrine or uh, what I translated is healthy teaching, where does that stem from? Now, in the context, Paul isn't just referring to theological realities, although that is included, but he is specifically speaking into a biblical paradigm to filter all of life through. Now, the Bible, the Bible doesn't always give us clear-cut answers to every specifically nuanced question that we have. We oftentimes interact with it wishing it did that, but instead God gives us something far greater and far more helpful. What he gives us is a sufficient scripture that within it gives principles and concepts that are applicable in any situation 
thousands of years ago, right now, and in the years to come. See, in the scriptures, we discover this picture of God's design before sin enters into the world. And then it transmits into this view of God's design being distorted through sin and death but then finding ultimate hope in the gospel of Jesus and then finally seeing its ultimate culmination and restoration in the long-awaited destination of God's kingdom to come. Now, I'm a big fan of words. And uh, one of the words that I really enjoy is the word holistic. Uh, I love the word holistic. I like, what it, I, I like thinking about uh, definitions and uses of words. And so this word holistic, it, it, it's still fairly common to use in different avenues of life. Thinking of like holistic health uh, includes your physical well-being, nutrition, exercise, uh, brain health, mental health, spiritual health. Like holistic meaning everything all-encompassing. It is a consistent reality where all the parts are moving in light of and operating within the concept of the whole. So this is what the authors of Scripture, including what Paul writes about here, that God's desire for humanity is to experience a life where our beliefs and our desires, our words and our actions are all moving in the same direction. See, holistic is the very opposite of hypocrite. Hypocrite is distorted. It's disordered. It's inconsistent. Holistic, on the other hand, is altogether different. Now, the human story, though it is it, because it is distorted, falls into one of two categories. In each of our lives, we'll swing between these two on our own, in our own flesh. We will either go into a, whole, in a version of holistic living, but it's holistic rebellion. And these are what the Cretans had been living in. They were living consistent. Their gods, the way their gods lived, they were trying to live in light of that. And they were living consistently with their gods who were rebellious and evil and wicked, uh, that were liars and schemers. And so they embodied all those things. So they were living holistic with their beliefs. It's just that all their beliefs were anti-God's way. And then there's another option, which is hypocritical self-righteousness, where we might say all the right things or even believe all the right things or even want the right things or even sometimes act the right way. But there's a disconnect between those four realities. And we become like the Pharisees who acted the right way, at least everyone who was watching, who spoke the right way, at least everyone who was listening, but their beliefs and their desires were rebellious. See, this is where Jesus comes into the story of humanity, becoming a human minus the distortion. He takes on love and begins to live in true obedience to the law. Jesus is the first holistic being in the history of humanity where everything about him lined up with God's will and God's way because he was God. And so we have his example, which is awesome, but we have so much more than a really good role model in Jesus. His sacrificial death on the cross, he makes a way for us to become who we were meant to be all along, holistic image bearers of God, where one day in the not yet, our beliefs, our desires, our actions, and our words will all line up holistically. But until that day of final destination, God has called us as to be something different because we are still imperfect. While we have the spirit of God living within us, we still have to deal with the flesh, that part of us that wants to rebel, that wants to do things our own way, that wants to listen to our version of wisdom. 
And so what God gives us in his infinite grace is the scriptures, his spirit, and his community. And so he gives us biblical community so that we can walk alongside one another, so that we can be shepherded by one another towards this vision for what the way of Jesus looks like. It's not one where it's, well, look right here in the Bible. Now that's going to tell you exactly what you need to do in this situation. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But within the scriptures, what we discover are principles that are equally applicable to any and every situation you could possibly deal with. And see, it's into this that Paul is writing, which is what Paul's doing here. He's getting tied as shepherding instructions for how individuals in five different life experiences should now live in light of the gospel. He's not just simply saying, act better, but by the Spirit's power, live more and more in this holistic image of Jesus, his way, a way that is defined by holiness, kindness, Love, boldness. Now, each of these lists are going to have some similar content within them. And in fact, if you cross-reference against 1 Timothy, you're going to see some similarities even there. But you're also going to see some significant differences that are contextual. Not just within the five groups, but in how these five groups interacted within the ancient Greco-Roman world in Crete. And so he starts in verse 2. So, Sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, first up, older guys. You read this and we think absolutely that's the kind of stuff that older guys should be doing, right? But really, like that sounds like stuff that we should all be doing, right? Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Like, yeah, whatever your age, whatever your gender, like that sounds like a good thing to live in. And so then he moves on to older women. Verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so once again, we read that and it's like, absolutely, older women should definitely be like that. But so should the rest of us who are not older women. Uh, That sounds like good stuff. Not being slanders, not being irreverent in your behavior, not being slave to much wine. Yeah, sounds, sounds like good stuff. So why is there differences even between older men and older women? You see, even here, what we're discovering is that Paul is speaking in to specific contextual issues that had arisen within the church. What he is seeing, it's not that women, older women, you be reverent, older men do something else. Or if you're just these things, then you're good. And if you're struggling with the things that the older men are struggling with, well, then you're fine. It's not inconsistent. It is specific to the experience that's being lived in in that space. So in verse four and five, he goes on to younger women. So first, back to the older women, last sentence. They are to teach what is good. To who? And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so now we get to younger women. But specifically, if you could tell with some of the language. He's speaking to younger married women. And so what we're going to see here is a huge emphasis on the family and the household. Now, 
Let's go back to the ancient world, back to their context. What's happening in their time? By this time in Roman society, the family unit, which had uh, historically been a major part of the Greco-Roman world, had been largely neglected from a cultural point of view. Affairs were rampant, especially among the nobility. Children outside of marriages had become very normative, making it very difficult to understand whose titles pass on to whose, whose possessions pass on to whose. One commentator explains it to this passage this way. The Emperor Augustus, who uh, you might remember hearing about him around the birth of Jesus, the Emperor Augustus was so concerned about the lack of family interest among the Roman nobility and thereby cutting off the lines of the old Roman families that he passed a law penalizing Romans who did not marry or have legitimate children. Man, that's a law, right? Like, you're like, whoa. So apparently what was happening in the Roman world was that there was such a disregard for the family unit that it was upending Roman civilization and needed to be enacted with actual laws. Now, I don't think that that's coming anytime soon here, but what Paul is saying is actually in line with, apparently, what Caesar thought was a good idea. But see, he wasn't just going in line with Rome. He was in line with what God has always continued to do, especially in the midst of a culture like the Cretans that had continued to devalue the value of the family and of the family unit at the home. Now, what Paul is writing about here is hinting into a reality that God consistently from Genesis to Revelation seems to envision that the nuclear family has a benefit and a purpose to the world around it. That Paul is describing here that God sees the family unit as beautiful, as an important reality. And that within it, there would be a husband and a wife who can learn to sacrificially love one another with care and respect, where their children can be raised to know how loved they are, to be taught the scriptures in the way of God, and to be guided towards a life of flourishing. Now, what about those who are called to singleness? Because Paul's not addressing them here, right? So what's that about? See, Paul and Titus, they're both single. And in fact, if you read Paul elsewhere, he seems to think highly of being single. In fact, he says, I would prefer all of you guys did that too. It's a great thing, actually, because he talks about two blessings. One is that you are blessed with having an abundance of freedom for the sake of ministry for the gospel. That's a good one. And the second one is that you discover the beauty of family within the biblical community together. So Paul here isn't negating the beauty of singleness and he isn't accentuating the beauty of marriage. But what he is doing is he is once again speaking into a specific context where it is likely that many of the younger women are struggling in this holistic vision for their marriages. And so to that point, Paul is speaking in. And so now he moves on to younger men. Verse six, likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. That's it. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, now that's important. I realized that right before, what did he say to, to younger women? Be self-controlled. And then he kept going, all right? Like you can make jokes like, haha, men really need the work. So like just start at the, the base level, right? But reality is, is that this was a, once again, an important con- contextual issue that was happening in their culture. That because in the Roman world, there was a breakdown of the family unit where there was unfaithfulness, especially amongst husbands in a family. To call them to be self-controlled makes a ton 
of sins. Ton, ton of sins towards extramarital affairs, towards any number of issues, any area where a husband would be tempted to lack self-control. Now, again, once again, it doesn't say young, young married men, but in virtue of the context, placing it right next to younger women who are apparently married, we see a connection there. And so what he is saying is something to the effect of not you young guys, all you have to worry about is this one thing. And if you do that, you're golden. Everyone else has a much bigger, he is saying, this is a big one for you guys. You need to live in this one. And so, so Paul isn't picking and choosing based on what he thinks is a bigger issue for everyone and every time he is speaking into this context and explaining and touching on biblical, a biblical paradigm that transmits not just into this context, but into ours as well. And so Paul has now covered four specific people groups. But before he gets into the fifth, he takes a pit stop, talking in verse seven and eight. Likewise, urge Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So imagine, imagine your single younger Titus called to come in and shepherd this community. And you're specifically given instruction in how to speak into marriages. But you come in guns blazing, you're vain, you're selfish, you're arrogant, you're sleeping around, you're getting kicked out of all the Cretan bars every night. What would you be thinking of Titus? What word would you use? Hypocrite. Yeah, you're right. Hypocrite. You would be thinking hypocrite. And that seems to be what he is saying here. You would be a hypocrite, a play actor, a poser. And so Paul encourages Titus with a reminder to lead the way in holistic discipleship. That Titus should continually rely on the Spirit's power that his beliefs and his desires, his words and his actions would all live consistent with the way of Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. And see, in doing this, Paul explains that nobody's going to have ammo to easily pick up against you. Now, when you read a number of stories of Christians who have been imprisoned, persecuted, and martyred for their faith. One of the things that has always really stuck out to me when I read those kind of stories is that for the, for the vast majority of them, when they're arrested by governments, they're typically not rang up on charges of anything to do with claiming to know and follow Jesus. I always thought that was interesting. Oftentimes, they are brought up on other charges. For example, uh, in, in, in one communist nation, uh, some house church leaders were rounded up and they were charged with conspiring with a foreign government because they were preaching the, the Bible. So they conspired with foreign government. Another, an, another um, martyr in the faith, uh, a guy who died back in the 40s, Watchman Nee, he was arrested uh, after he had planted churches all throughout, uh, all throughout his nation as the Communist Party began to take it over. And he had been warned and he just continued to preach and eventually he was arrested and eventually killed. But the charges that he was brought in prison for was for tax evasion. They had falsified tax documents for his private business and then they arrested him for those falsified documents. Now, why would you do that? Because you don't want to make a martyr out of a believer, right? 
Like you want to discredit them along the way. You want everyone to think, wow, Christians like this woman or this guy are terrible people. And so Paul's call to Titus is to live a holistic life. And in doing so, he would serve as an example to believers and make it really difficult for other people who want to silence him to create a charge to do so. In other words, the mask, don't put on a mask. Don't put on a mask. Because if you put on the mask, the entire world can see it, right? Even just go back to what he had said about the young single or young married women. It was so that other, so that, what do you say specifically? That the word of God may not be reviled. The, the world's watching. The world's watching. They're watching to see if you're serious about what you say you believe. If your desires and your beliefs and your actions and your words all line up together. They're watching. They want to see if you're play acting, if you're putting on a mask. So Paul and other teachers in the early church were absolutely convinced that being a Christian should actually make you a blessing to any nation you're a part of, that you would be a great citizen, a great worker, um, that you would be the best kind because you would have integrity, hard work ethic, that you would live with genuine love and self-sacrifice to those who are around you. And so that matters because what he's saying is that you, Titus, it should be evident to everyone that you actually know and love Jesus. And he's saying, and as you go and you talk to the older men and the older women and the, the young married women and the young married men, have them do the same. Have us all live in what it means to sell out to the way of Jesus and to live in light of that in every way which includes what he gets at in the fifth category. Verses nine and 10. Bond servants. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, the Greek word that he's using here for bondservant is the word doulos, which can often be referred to as four different things, um, depending on the context it's being spoken into. And in this verse, we don't find out which one it was. It would mean hired worker, indentured servant, bondservant, or slave. And, it, and its meaning was predicated on the circumstances. But regardless, what Paul writes here seems odd, Right? at the very least. And it seems dangerous at the very most because of how belief about those who have, proclaimed, who have proclaimed Jesus have used this in atrocious ways throughout history. Now in the Greco-Roman plays though, and in their writings, one of the most common comedic tropes that you would go back to was the insolent slave. So slaves in the Ancient, uh, in ancient theater were never the good guys. They were always insolent slaves. They were stupid, manipulative, gossiping, lazy, backbiting against their masters. They were seen as bad guys. And so Paul here is not making a commentary on the relationship from a master who, who, is, who begins to follow after Jesus. He does that in other spaces. But once again, we have to understand the circumstances, circumstances he's writing into. He focuses on doulos who are refusing to live in the, who, because of their faith in Jesus, because they are now obedient to him in his ways, they are refusing to live in the social stigmas that were commonly believed about them. 
And instead, they would make much of Jesus because they are transformed by the, from the inside out. That they would be respectful or hardworking and helpful so that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what's that hitting on? Be consistent. Be holistic. Don't put on the mask. Allow your heart transformation transform everything even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of difficulty. Now, Paul has been proclaiming all of this, talking into all of these. Why? Because he wants the believers in Crete to be the kind of individuals who are so radically transformed by the character and nature of God that everything about their lives is implicated. Everything about their lives is touched on because Jesus is that good and powerful. See, when you think of hypocrites, who do you think of? Uh, individuals on religious news networks, social media influencers, family members, politicians. I mean, there's a lot of options in the world, right? Now, those are some of the easy ones for me too. But ultimately, as I've been studying this passage over the last few weeks, what I have been challenged by is the reality that so easily this is me. So easily this is the posture of my heart to put on the mask, to live inconsistently with the gospel, where the implications of the gospel do not touch all of my beliefs, all of my desires, all of my thoughts, all of my actions. And this is the long obedience in the same direction of following Jesus. None of us are there yet. None of us have it all together. We are all prone to wander. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that this is true of you. And so we are so quick, and I am so quick to point the fingers at others. But all the while, what's in it for me? See, God came for hypocrites. He came for rebels to redeem and restore us through Jesus and to provide us with his spirit, bringing us near to himself by his wounds. We are healed. See, for those of us who are here tonight uh, and we are sensing that there are spaces in our lives where we are living as a hypocrite, we are play acting, we are posing, we are pretending, we are living inconsistent, whether it's in our desires or our beliefs or our actions, or our words, wherever it is at, here's what we get to do. Try harder. No, we don't just try harder, right? What do we do? We surrender. And we surrender because we actually have a God who cares enough about us to do so, who is so trustworthy and faithful that he doesn't, when we remove our mask, he doesn't go, oh, no, 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 put it back on, put it back on. No, he says, lay it down because I already paid for it. I, pray, I, I paid for the brokenness. I paid for the, for the ugliness of your heart. I paid for it all. And you can surrender to me. And not just on a one-time basis, but every single day. And we can now remember that he who has begun a new work within you will carry it to completion on the day that we arrive in our destination when the now translates into the not yet. See, God wants to work actively within us as we submit to him daily and as we watch him bear new fruit in us. It's not us. We don't do this work. We surrender to him and watch what he can do. And what we can get to watch him do is turn us into something that, is, that, that needs no mask, but that is beautiful, holistic, and pure. Why? 
Because our king, who we are becoming made in the image of, is beautiful, holistic, and pure. And what he has in store is beyond anything we could ask for or imagine. And I think about the common image in our cultural imagination towards Christians, right? The the number one word that is associated is hypocrite. Yes, polls still say that. Now, we don't want to be those kind of Christians. For those of us who follow Jesus, I'd imagine none of you want to be a hypocritical Christian. Have you ever been a hypocritical Christian? Yeah. But can we say, man, I'm going to change what everyone else thinks about Christians. No, you're going to definitely mess that up. I promise. But what we get to discover is what he is doing in our own lives that we get to be a part of it. We can't change the perception of every person about us. But we can say, God, would you work in my heart that is prone to wander? Would you do a new work in me and help me discover more of who I am and who you are? Would you help me to be so in awe of who you are that nothing remains the same? And so that's what we get to step into. Tomorrow, tonight, Tuesday, Tuesday night, next the holidays are coming up when you're with your family. In every moment, this is what we get to live into. A life where we surrender it all to Jesus. I want to invite the band to come on out. And what I'd love for us all to do right now is to simply close our eyes. And I just want to give us some space for a second to just ponder this. Talk to God. God, is is there something in my life? Is there something in my work life that is not consistent with the gospel? Is there something in my private life when no one is watching that is inconsistent with the gospel? God, is there anything in my marriage the way I treat my spouse? that is not consistent with the gospel. My children, my roommates, my neighbors, the person who's driving in front of me on my way to work every morning, my coworkers, with you. God, would you reveal in our hearts how desperately we need you? God, would you reveal to us that we can't do this alone, that we don't have the capacity, but that in you, we can can gaze upon the creator of the cosmos, the only one who can bring life, light, and freedom, and we can be transformed. Not necessarily instantaneously, but, but in relationship, in abiding with you. Because you haven't rejected us. You haven't forsaken us. You've given your spirit within us to dwell as a down payment, as a stamp, as a seal of our salvation until the day to come. And you've surrounded us in biblical community so we'd know that we're never alone in this. But that we'd also know that we don't have to stay where we're at. That we're not trapped anymore but that through the gospel, through, through your son, God, you have set us free. And if we are free, then we are free indeed. 
we're yours. God, forgive me for all the ways that I don't believe that every day. Would you believe, would you forgive us, Lord, for all the ways that, that we rebel on you every day in our thoughts and in our desires and in our, in our actions and in our words. Lord, we want to demonstrate you well to non-believers, to those who don't know you, to be known as people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be perfect, but are being perfected by your spirit and by your work. Lord, let us be quick to repent and slow to listen. Help us, Lord, to be transformed. Help us, Lord, we need you. We need you more than we know. So help us to draw near to you tonight, Lord, and abide with you, and abide with you with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.